Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. The United States, as the world knows, we do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. We shall be prepared if others wish it. We shall be alert to try to stop it. But we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task or hopeless of its success. Confident and unafraid, we must labor on, not towards a strategy of annihilation, but towards a strategy of peace. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable, inevitable, inevitable. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Socialist Evolution. I'm your host, Ashley Kreiss. It is a beautiful Thursday as I'm recording this. You guys will hear it on Friday. Hopefully Friday is beautiful too. And I'm excited to chat about the news with you. Um, As always, we have a shit ton of news to get to. Some of it good, some of it terrible. That's the way the news goes. So let's hop right to it. I want to start by talking about Tuesday's big primary wins. And small primary wins. All of these wins are so important. All of these wins just help to further the progressive movement that has been building and growing for decades, but truly for, I would say, the last five years in this country, there really has been a conscious progressive and socialist movement growing on the re- on the left. I think it's been kind of a... A beautiful and a hard year. We've had so many people who have gotten active with the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think that both of his campaigns, um, but especially the 2020 campaign, just because they had so much more time to get organized. um, The 2020 campaign really did reach a lot of people. A lot of people got involved and politically active. People were door knocking for the first time in their life for this campaign. And then he dropped out. As COVID was raging, Bernie Sanders dropped out of the campaign. And I think there's a lot of reasons why he dropped out. One of those reasons I do believe was because he's a good man. And 
at the time, the Democratic National Committee and Joe Biden were urging people to go out and vote. And Bernie Sanders, in good conscience, stopped doing get out the vote work because he didn't want people to go and vote during the middle of a global pandemic. But the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic parties of these states, all the powers that be, honestly, except for what that Republican governor in Ohio pushed these Democratic primaries to continue happening. And I believe that's a big reason why Bernie did drop out. You know, not to mention at the end of the day, his whole thing is really just about beating Donald Trump. So I think when he thought that things were written in the sand, that the campaign couldn't beat the Biden campaign, especially if you're not going to attack Joe Biden. It's really hard to like beat the last man standing if you won't go after them. So he dropped out. And I love it. You you see all over the moderate left this confusion as to why, even though Bernie told all of his supporters to vote for Joe Biden, why people still aren't supporting Joe Biden at the levels that they support Bernie Sanders, and it's because we didn't support Bernie Sanders, the candidate, the person. We supported Bernie Sanders' policy platform. It could have been any person up there if they had that policy platform. I mean, preferably it would have been a woman of color, but it was an old white man, and it had nothing to do with the identity of the person or the personality of the person. I think that's something people get so caught up on is the personality of the candidate. It had everything to do with the policies. And we saw in Tuesday's primaries that people are so here for Medicare for All. They're here for a Green New Deal. They're here for a change in the establishment DC politicians who have been in power for decades. So we're going to talk about a couple of people more in depth, but I do want to just take a moment to say every single name of a federal progressive who has won in 2020. All of these people need our continued support. A lot of them won primaries, so they do still have a general election to win in November. So keep these people in mind when you are going to vote in November. Hopefully you're not going anywhere to vote and you have an absentee ballot, but who knows? We'll see how that rolls out. So anyways, we have quite a few progressive winners in 2020 so far, and they are Kara Eastman out of Nebraska, Marie Newman out of Illinois' 3rd District, Paula Jean Swearjen out of West Virginia, who is running for Senate. Paula Jean Swearjen, she ran was it in 2016? Paul Jean Swearjen is an amazing, amazing candidate out of West Virginia. She lost the last time she ran, but now she won her primary this time around. Um, so keep an eye on her. We have Natalie Klein out of West Virginia. Kathy, Kunk- Kathy Kunkel out of West Virginia. Hillary Turner out of West Virginia. Wow, West Virginia is ready for a progressive wave. Mike Siegel out of Texas. Adrian Bell out of Texas. Julie Oliver out of Texas, Donna Amon from Texas. We've got Zach Rocknerud out of North Dakota, Deb Holland from New Mexico, Teresa Leaguer Fernandez from New Mexico, Shahid Buttar, who actually won. He is in a California does a jungle primary. So Shahid Buttar and Nancy Pelosi will be facing off in the general election in November. 
Shahid Buttar is an amazing candidate. I recommend that everybody look up his work. Everybody, if possible, phone bank for this man. If he can take out Nancy Pelosi, it's not as though he would become Speaker of the House, but this would be such a generation-changing victory, not just for the left, but for the whole entire country. I mean, how Nancy Pelosi needs, as proven by the very first episode, (laughs) in my opinion, Nancy Pelosi's dentures, check out episode number one. She's incredibly problematic. She is stopping progress, and she's as effective at it as Mitch McConnell is at his job. So Shahid Buttar in California's 12th district um definitely check him out and if you are eligible to vote in san francisco in that district please please vote for shahid Buttar. everyone go and phone bank for this man ro khana he's been in congress for a while now he's another great progressive he was a bernie sanders co-chair angelica dunez out of california david kim from california liam omara from california andy ruff from indiana Kasim Rashid out of Virginia, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out of New York, Jamal Bowman from New York, Mondaire Jones, New York, Dana Baltar, New York, Nate McMurray, Nate McMurray out of New York, and then as we all wait with bated breath for the results from Kentucky, hopefully we add Charles Booker to that list of progressive winners. Now, that was a lot of names, and Tuesday should give us all a huge morale boost between the work that we're seeing on the ground with the Black Lives Matter movement, which has now turned into the defund the police movement. We're not just talking about Black Lives Matter in an abstract sense. We're talking about Black Lives Matter in the sense that we're going to defund the police because these black lives matter and the police are taking black lives. So these protests have turned into actual policy-changing action. Um, Oakland, Oakland USD voted, was it unanimously? The Oakland United School District Board, yeah, they did unanimously vote to eliminate the district's police department, which is amazing. Unfortunately, LAUSD, that vote lost. Um, two of the school, two of the seven school board members voted to eliminate the LAUSD police department, but that failed. Um, so I guess everything really is a balance. We have it failing in LA, but passing in Oakland. So that is really good news um, as far as Oakland goes. We have amazing news as far as these primaries go. Jamal Bowman, man, this is, his victory is the most notable, I guess. He took out Elliot Engel, who was a 16-term incumbent. Elliot Engel was in Congress for 32 years, and he didn't have a primary challenge for 20 years. So for two decades, This shriveled up old white man was representing the Bronx, one of the most diverse districts in the country, which he never visited unless he had to do some sort of photo op or something like that to bolster his reputation in the district. He was taken down by Jamal Jamal Bowman, a middle school principal 
who, uh, if you listen to this man speak, he cares so deeply about his community. And he cares deeply about causing hell in Congress. So that district is blue as the sky. He is going to win in November. He's going to join AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, hopefully Shahid Buttar in Congress. And he's going to become another change maker who's not just fighting for the people of the Bronx, but he's fighting for all of us. You know, not, not every socialist or progressive is lucky enough to get a socialist or progressive representative but when we have an actual progressive caucus i don't know what we there is a real there's a real fake progressive caucus that has about a hundred people in it who are not progressive so once we have an actual progressive caucus we can have a group of people that vote on the progressive side of the issue every single time. And the power that that holds is, it's immense. And the power that that holds, especially if Nancy Pelosi isn't the Speaker of the House anymore. Because the thing is, Nancy Pelosi is so good at her job. She's so good at getting absolutely nothing done except for military budgets and tax cuts for the rich. If there's a new leader of the house, a new speaker of the house who isn't so great at those things, it's definitely an avenue for a real progressive caucus to assert more power than they have been. Now, Elliot Engel, as I said, he has been in Congress for 32 years. He is the most senior Democrat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He's been serving on the House Foreign Affairs Committee since 1989. I'm 27 and I was born in 1993. So he's been serving on this committee four years before I was born. He's been serving on this committee since since George H.W. Bush was our president. So as you can imagine, his policy platform was old and outdated and The people who endorsed him were old and outdated as well. So Elliot Engel, who just lost in a landslide loss to Jamal Bowman, was endorsed by the likes of Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and the Congressional Black Caucus PAC. So there's the Congressional Black Caucus, which does have some Republicans in it, and the Congressional Black Caucus PAC. Most of the Democrats in the Congressional Black Caucus are part of the Congressional Black Caucus PAC. And they endorsed Elliot Engel over Jamal Bowman. That's a whole nother story about what the Congressional Black Caucus is doing. I mean, they, they're they a front, I would say. But anyways, the thing that I find interesting is that Governor Andrew Cuomo endorsed Elliot Engel as well. So you have all these people, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo, who used prison slave labor to make hand sanitizer during a COVID pandemic. Andrew Cuomo, who put off closing down New York's economy during the COVID pandemic. 
to then tout himself later on as some leader during COVID because he thought it was going to get him the presidential nomination. It's laughable, but it really goes to show you the type of people that endorse a politician like Elliot Engel. And as I was looking into all these things, I went down a rabbit hole and I can't not share the rabbit hole with you. So via Andrew Cuomo's endorsement of Elliot Engel, I started looking up Andrew Cuomo had some really interesting things to say regarding how the schools in New York City should basically not exist anymore. During a time of COVID, and I'm paraphrasing, but we have all this technology. What's even the point of a brick and mortar school anymore? As if schooling is obsolete. So there's been a couple of attempts There's been many, many attempts across the country to privatize schools, to defund public schooling so these schools don't seem as if they're even capable of educating children, and then put that money into charter schools, charter schools that are run by the friends of the elites, charter schools that are run by people who, you know, kowtow with the Betsy DeVosses of the world. The way charter schools work. There are charter schools in low-income areas, but charter schools typically make their money by giving out vouchers. Or they advocate that that people in the community receive vouchers that they can spend on their schooling. And the voucher is typically less than what it costs to go to the charter school. So if you happen to be from a family that can't, you know, you get this $1,000 voucher, but the charter school is $5,000 a year, your child isn't going to be able to go to the charter school. But now you have public funds that would only be going to the public schools are distributed to everybody as vouchers, and people are going to use those vouchers to go to the charter school. So now all of a sudden you have the taxpayer dollars going towards private charter school education. And this is just one of the issues with how charter schools are funded and how they siphon taxpayer money away from the public schools that actually need it and give it to these schools for, you know, rich children to go to. Now, Bill Gates. Andrew Cuomo would would really love to work with Bill Gates on privatizing education in New York City. As of 2017, Bill Gates has put so much money into these education projects that he has. As of 2017, it's kind of hard to tell because there are different funds writing all these different checks to schools, but it appears as though the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has spent $1.7 billion on their K-12 public education investment plan. $1.7 billion. That was in 2017. I'm sure he spent more since then. I actually know that he spent more since then because there's reports about it. But this really begs the question... See, and these people think that they're so smart. These people think that they know everything just because they have money. 
They spent $1.7 billion on public education, and what do they have to show for it? Education in the United States is falling behind other developed countries year after year. Our schools are crumbling. Why do kids in Detroit go to schools that are full of black mold? They don't have textbooks. There's classes where eighth graders are teaching sixth graders how to do their math because they don't have teachers. They're going to school in the winter without heat. Students in Detroit had to fight and argue that they weren't receiving their rights as Americans to a public education. And unfortunately, the ruling came back that because they had a school to attend, they were receiving an equal education. Although the way schools are funded in this country is based off of income taxes. So if, or I'm sorry, excuse me, based off of property taxes. So if you live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of renters, there's not that many people paying property taxes. And guess what? Your school doesn't have any money. So if you live in a low income neighborhood, if you live in a dense urban neighborhood, your school's not going to be very good. That's how it was for these students in Detroit. Please, Bill Gates, tell me where your $1.7 billion is to fix these educational problems. But that's not the way that he looks at solving educational problems because Bill Gates isn't an educator. Just because Bill Gates knows about computers, that doesn't mean he knows shit about funding public education. Bill Gates is not an educator. Bill Gates doesn't know what it's like to stand up in front of a classroom and teach sixth graders in a minority low-income neighborhood. He has no idea what it takes. He doesn't know that schools need nurses and schools need guidance counselors before they need every student to have a fucking iPad or I guess whatever the Microsoft version of an iPad is. A Dell? A PC? Something, yeah, Microsoft. I'm an Apple person, so I don't know what they're, whatever, the tablet. But with all this technology, you know, why do schools even exist? So this is from a Forbes article that was written by Peter Green on May 8th. It literally took less than an hour for the pushback to start. Governor Andrew Cuomo dismissively questioned why school buildings even exist these days and announced that he was enlisting Bill Gates' help to reimagine schooling in the Empire State. From a dozen different corners, the objections came. One day later, Cuomo's Facebook page attempted to soften the announcement. Quote, teachers are heroes and nothing could ever replace in-person learning. The quote began, or excuse me, the post began, before assuring readers that the reimagining would be done in full partnership with educators and administrators. That does not appear to have calmed anybody's fears. So what's the concern? Bill Gates gets blamed for plenty of crazy things. One pandemic conspiracy theory is that he has engineered all of this so that he can implant brain chips. This is something that people actually have... This is one of those things about Americans that just blows my mind. People will have conspiracies that Bill Gates is using coronavirus to put microchips in all of us, but people won't believe that Bill Gates is using our public education system to harvest data on children so he can sell them things. Like, that's literally obviously what's happening. As we are going to go further into detail and in Bloom, the whole thing is a data harvesting scheme. 
people won't believe what's literally right in front of their face, but they will believe that Bill Gates is using coronavirus to put microchips in all of us. So that's the state of affairs in the United States. Back to the article. But the Gates track record in education deserves more careful scrutiny. For people who haven't paid close attention, it may seem a simple matter. A very rich guy wanted to give money to help with education. What could be wrong with that? The Gates Foundation has undertaken several products, projects in education. They have not gone well, and while Gates has always had the ability to walk away from these projects unscathed, not everyone has been so lucky. So what they're referencing is the schools that end up being devastated by the projects that the Gates Foundation pursues. They spent $1.7 billion investing in education, and they've seen almost no success from that. I mean, their, their idea of investing in education is so narrow-minded. There's a school in California. It's part of the Hillsborough County Public Schools. See, this is this is in Tampa, Florida. The Gates Foundation was working with this school, and they took away the grant money and the financial reserves that were promised to this school. So the grant was to be paid in 80 installments. If such installments were monthly, then the grant would be paid over roughly seven years, with the final payment made at the end of the 2015-16 school year. Of course, Gates had some ideas about how this, quote, teacher effectiveness business should work. The report linked above has, as its second sentence, quote, a teacher's effectiveness has more impact on student learning than any other factor under the control of school systems, including class size, school size, and the quality of after-school programs. Do you know how insane you have to be to think that one sole teacher can be more effective than the class size that she is teaching, than the school size that she belongs to, and the quality of after-school programs. Imagine if there wasn't, if the school didn't have enough money to support after-school sports. Imagine if there were no teachers that wanted to coach the debate team. Imagine if the school took away the music department. I mean, all these things that create a well-rounded educational experience, the importance of those things are completely stripped away under the Bill Gates philosophy of public education. And it's all just boiled down to teacher performance, which puts insane amounts of pressure on teachers. It also gives them negative negative incentives to give students better grades. I mean, standardized testing too, to put the teacher's performance is all down to the testing scores. Standardized testing is one of the least effective ways to actually test a student's knowledge. The way that you have to study for a standardized test is basically rapid memorization of facts that you forget almost instantly. Standardized testing has proven like time and time again to be incredibly ineffective. They're actually taking away university by university is taking away SATs because it's actually a really like racial way to accept or not accept people into higher 
learning institutions. So the SAT essentially, it's a standardized test. And if you're rich enough to afford tutors that can tell you all the tricks to how, of how to take, get a good grade on the test, you get a good grade on the test and your SAT score is higher. If you're poor and you can't afford those tutors, well, good luck. Bill Gates literally boils down his idea of a successful school to three things. Attendance, college enrollment, and scores on a math and reading test. What does that mean for schools where attendance is low because parents work multiple jobs and maybe they can't ensure that their child is getting to school? What does that mean for schools where a majority of the children can't afford to go to college, so college enrollment isn't high. We just discussed the standardized testing. So scores on math and reading tests. What if those aren't your strong suits? What if you really excel in your shop classes? This is such a narrow way to look at schooling and to look at what it means to have a successful school. This is why his projects fail. And the thing is, he has so much money, he's able to just walk away from these projects and start a new one. And they never actually have to be introspective as like, wow, why did that project fail? There's always some other person or institution to scapegoat. So back to the Forbes article. Reading through years of the annual Bill and Melinda letter, you find acknowledgement that their latest idea didn't quite pan out, but the problems are never located within the programs themselves. Teachers didn't have the right resources or training. The foundation's PR work didn't properly anticipate resistance. After years of failed initiatives, the latest Gates newsletter concludes not that they should examine some of their own assumptions, change their approach, or invite a different set of eyeballs to look over their programs. Instead, they should just do what they're doing, but do it harder quote, swing for the fences. This is such a frustrating thing because this honestly reminds me of like the democratic establishment. The fact that the Gates Foundation, and this also applies to the Dem establishment, has such a deep inability to be introspective and actually analyze the reasons why they're losers why their projects are horrible, embarrassing failures. They can't do that. There's always something else to blame. You know, it's Russia or it's sexism, you know, that Hillary Clinton didn't win the election. It's never that they ran a bad campaign accusing people who were desperate enough to vote for Donald Trump to be like deplorable losers. You know, that it wasn't that. It wasn't not going to Wisconsin or Michigan to campaign. It wasn't that, you know, it was fucking Russia. I mean, these people continue making these mistakes because they blame everybody else. They have such an inability to look inward and actually address their flaws. And that's why, you know, Bill Gates will spend upwards of, you know, $2 billion on public education for zero results. And people still think that this guy is somehow trustworthy or a man that can be put in charge of a project like this honestly the fact that new york as a state but even bill gates as he does this work get together a board of teachers who are in the union 
Get together like school board members and principals and students and ask these people like what they want, what could be better with their schools. You know, go around and do this. Like in in every state, in all 50 states, compile some sort of, I don't know, action group that gets together and discusses like the state of schooling. You know, actually get teachers from low-income schools. Look at problems in schools that have... Look at problems in schools and low-income neighborhoods specifically and lift those schools up and by doing that, lift up all schools. I mean, the fact that they don't reach out to anyone who's actually, like, in a fucking school. They just come from the top and try to, like, institute these ideas when they don't actually know anything about public education. And that's why none of it works, you know? And they'll continue to, like, push the buck onto someone else. You know, it was the PR or... The teachers didn't have the resources. It isn't it your responsibility as someone who's like claiming to fund the school to provide the teacher with the resources. But that's not the point of these projects. The point of these projects is to harvest information, and that's actually why the In Bloom project, which the Gates Foundation spent one hundred million dollars on, was a horrible, miserable failure. So the project actually got stopped because of mass outrage from people, especially parents. And I'm about to read you guys a paragraph from studentprivacymatters.org. And this paragraph is a doozy. Like you think it's bad and then it just continues to get worse and worse. So In Bloom was... The, pro- the project, the goal of the project was to get as much data as possible from students and then store it in a secure way and then use that data to, I actually haven't found what like the data exactly was supposed to do. It was supposed to make the schools better somehow. I'm not sure how because they don't specify what the data was going to be used for. And it was honestly difficult to even find what data they were all collecting. But here we go. Created and funded by the Gates and Carnegie Foundations. So we're getting that that old money, that Carnegie money. With $100 million, InBloom Incorporated was designed to collect a maximum amount of confidential and personally identifiable student and teacher data from school districts and states throughout the country. This information, including student names, addresses, grades, test scores, economic, race, special education status, disciplinary status, and more was to be stored on a data cloud run by Amazon.com with an operating system by Wireless slash Amplify, a subsidiary of Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. InBloom Inc. planned to share this highly sensitive information with software companies and other for-profit vendors. The backers of InBloom pitched the project as an effort to help students by providing more personalized learning tools, yet there are no proven benefits to online learning and there are huge risks involved in commercializing this data and storing it on a vulnerable data cloud, especially a data cloud run by fucking Amazon.com. Do you think Amazon wants to protect people's information or do you think they want to use that information to sell people every last possible product that they can sell. The whole point of data collection is to sell people things. And the fact that Bill Gates was running a scam to 
to collect student data data this is data of minors k through 12 they're collecting minor data they're going to give that data to amazon and amazon is going to try and sell products to these people and it's sick because they're also taking people's economic status so they're targeting people of any any class to sell them shit and they're doing this through a, people's children you know the lack of privacy that children experience nowadays i feel bad there's children whose whole entire lives are online because people are constantly posting photos of their babies and shit on the internet small tangent but this is just like a part of our society that unfortunately is real there was a woman who had a a vlog a, a youtube channel and a main it was a lifestyle channel and a big part of this was she had her and her husband adopted a chinese baby and they had the adoption process and everything on their vlog and then the vlog was like them raising the baby and they had all these little cute photos or videos of the baby they like dress up the baby and do all these things and i was on a camping trip in oregon and i don't even know how i stumbled onto this this news story but they gave up the child because he was autistic so they put this child's whole first two years online to make money off of this baby and then decided it was too hard to raise an autistic child so they gave him up children have no privacy children's parents take like rip privacy away from their children as soon as they put that a photo of them on social media and now you have the likes of Bill Gates coming into New York City attempting to data harvest the information of minors and give it to Amazon in conjunction with a subsidiary of a Rupert Murdoch News Corporation. The Murdochs own Fox News. What the fuck are all these people doing together? What the fuck are all of these rich people doing together? They're propagandizing the masses. And Andrew Cuomo wants to work with Bill Gates on these initiatives. So, primary Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> this guy should, I can't believe that he was ever even in the conversation to become president. He's nobody's liberal, I will tell you that much for sure. The fact that he wants to work with Bill Gates on public education tells you more than you need to know about what kind of politician he is. All right, so moving on to police brutality. Even though we have peak awareness on police brutality, police murders of black Americans, the BLM movement in general, like there's peak awareness about these issues right now and I'm still finding it incredibly difficult to keep track of every single story. There's just way too many stories. There's way too many people that are still being murdered by the cops 
There's so many people that have been murdered by the cops that when a story comes out a year later, like in Elijah McLean's case, it's been a full year since your death and people are now just paying attention for whatever reason that that story went viral. But this is, there's so many police murders that you have to hope that your story goes viral for anyone to even hear about it. And even if it does go viral, Breonna Taylor's murderers have been at large for 105 days. One of her murderers, Brent Hankison, was fired from the force, but there have been no charges issued against any of these cops. So even with like our full force, there's just it's so much pressure that we need to put on these politicians to actually affect any sort of real change. I do want to talk about George Zapontis. And then we're going to talk a little bit about something that's going on in Madison. I'm from Wisconsin. I went to school at UW-Madison. So when a friend sent me this story the other day, I was I shouldn't be surprised. I shouldn't be shocked. But I was still a little bit blown away by the audacity of the whole thing. So George Zapontis is a 29-year-old man living in Queens, New York. I'm going to read a little bit of an article from the New York Daily News that just kind of talks about this exact situation that resulted in the death of this man at the hands of the police. The bipolar George Zapantis, Zapantis, excuse me, 29, suffered a fatal heart attack after he was tasered twice by arresting officers who found him in the basement dressed as a gladiator, wearing a helmet, and wielding a samurai sword after a neighbor called the cops on Sunday night, police and neighbors said. Cops arrived at George Zapontis' home in Whitestone just before 9.30 p.m. after the neighbor reported Zapontis was armed with a gun, authorities said. But officers arrived to find Zapontis in the basement with just the sword. And it says the basement. He was in his basement. He was in his own home. The neighbor saw this through a window. The neighbor was wrong about the fact that he had a gun. The neighbor was wrong about a lot of things, as well as were the cops. An inconsolable Queen's mom, standing only a few feet from the spot where her tasered son was fatally injured during an NYPD arrest, struggled through tears to imagine life without him. I'm crying because I was not here for my son in his last moments, and he died in such a horrible way. The weeping Athanasia Zapontis told the Daily News on Tuesday. He was my left hand, my son. He was everything. He died for no reason. It's not just the issue of the cops getting going to situations and murdering people at the most extreme, but making things worse. You know, the cops can go somewhere and, like, the situation doesn't end with the murder of a civilian. And they still go to a situation and they escalate. The problem is also with Americans who have some sort of idea that no matter what is happening, the appropriate response is to call the police. Especially when we know now as a country that the police will shoot and kill. Why would you ever take the chance of calling the police unless it is seriously a dire emergency? This is no different, really, than the Amy Cooper. There's a black man threatening my life. 
people know that they can call the cops and it's a death sentence. Especially if that person's a person of color. But cops in America shoot and kill a lot of people. Some statistics that map out police violence in America. So far just this year, the trend of fatal police shootings in the United States seems to only be increasing with a total 429 civilians having been shot, 88 of whom were black as of June 4th, 2020. In 2018, there were 996 fatal police shootings, and in 2019, this figure increased to 1,004. If you're black in this country, the likelihood of you being shot by the police and murdered is so much higher than if you're any other race. And while we have police out on the streets murdering civilians, our political leaders are doing nothing. They actually, they're doing everything to continue to encourage this behavior. So I'm going to play it you guys a video it's about three minutes long this is mayor satya conway rhodes she is the mayor of madison she's the first openly gay female mayor of madison she sounds like she would be really progressive right look at those identity politics she's a female and she's gay she's going to be a great mayor when it comes to racial issues though not quite so for people who don't know about the history of police shootings in Madison, here is a very, very abbreviated history. So in 2015, a black man, unarmed, named Tony Robinson, was fatally shot by a white Madison police officer named Matt Kenny during an altercation in a narrow stairwell. Dane County District Attorney Ismail Ozane determined Kenny's actions were lawful. Robinson's death remains a flashpoint in the local Black Lives Matter movement with protesters demanding Kenny be fired. That was in 2015, so five years later, I doubt he's going to be fired for the murder of this black man who was 19 years old. He took the whole entire life away from this man. He was 19. He just became an adult. And this officer, Matt Kenny, ripped all of those opportunities away from him. So, naturally, when the police shoot and kill a black man, you create a private Facebook group the very next day for the police officers and people that support the police officers to have some sort of way to easily communicate with one another. So this group was created, and I don't know what the hell this that mayor was thinking, Conway Rhodes, that this wouldn't be leaked. But she posted a private video in this Facebook group, and I'm going to play it for you right now. Hello, MPD family. Mayor Satya here. These past few months have been extraordinary times in this city's history. And the past few days have taken us even farther into uncharted territory. We're all living through a pandemic, which has put all of you in more danger than usual and you have had to adapt how you work in incredible ways. And now we have unprecedented protests, violence, and looting. None of us asked for these challenges, and we are all learning as we go. 
you must be exhausted. I know I am. And you're facing a much more difficult situation than I am. It must be absolutely infuriating to stand in heavy gear outside while listening to people constantly insult your chosen profession. It must be frightening to stand and have rocks and other things thrown at you and to be in harm's way constantly. And it must be agonizing to have worked so hard for so many years to build relationships around our city, to be as committed as I know you are to community policing, and to still be criticized for not doing enough. I spoke with an officer in the CCB garage recently who said that they hoped I know how hard it is and that you are not what the protesters say you are. I know that. I know that you are working hard and doing an amazing job under unbelievably hard circumstances. And I thank you for your service. In a large organization like ours, communication can be really, really hard. And during times of crisis, communications often become so focused on the tasks at hand that we forget the importance of communicating about taking care of ourselves and others. I'm here talking to you today because I have come to realize that I have not taken the opportunity to express my gratitude for your service or to adequately acknowledge the personal and collective sacrifices that you each have made during these incredibly challenging times. I was so focused on the task of addressing the concerns of our community that I didn't remember that you need and deserve both recognition and appreciation. So please know how much I appreciate you personally, your hard work, your courage, your sacrifice, and your service. Thank you. Be safe, be well, and please take care of yourselves and each other. So if anyone needs to take a moment to go to the bathroom and throw up, now is your opportunity to do that. Listening to her speak makes my blood boil. And there's a couple of parts in there that specifically infuriate me. When she says, it must be infuriating to stand in heavy gear outside to be in harm's way constantly. A, they don't need to be in heavy riot gear standing outside in the heat. They're peaceful protesters. Like, these cops don't need to be standing outside in riot gear. If that's a problem for the cops, if they find that uncomfortable or inconvenient, then why the fuck are they doing it? Because they don't need to be there. I have never seen cops in these amounts at protests that I've gone to. I protested in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago and there were hundreds of cops, cops that I've, I've never seen that many cops in one place before in my life. And it is intimidating. And they love that shit. I mean, they're such little bitches. They want to act like they're all tough guys and out there in their riot gear. But then they have the mayor coming onto their private little Facebook group 
telling them how much they're appreciated. And I, I bet they don't hear that. And they, they really deserve that appreciation. Oh, boo-hoo, you're standing out there in your riot gear. It must be so hard to be in harm's way. They have the guns. They have the batons. They have the tasers. They have the tear gas. They have fucking hand grenades. They have military-grade weaponry. And they're babied and coddled as if they're the ones that are in harm's way. And this is exactly the sort of attitude that makes cops think that they are constantly in harm's way. The mayor coddling them like that? Oh, little little babies, little pigs had to stand at a protest and watch some people and someone flung a, a rock. If that even happened. And if it did, you have full fucking riot gear, shields, guns, all this weaponry. It's pathetic. I mean, these cops are... They're tit babies. I mean, if they don't have everything exactly their way, they lose it. They call people on the left snowflakes. These cops, even when the, even when they're armed to the teeth, they still need to be rocked to sleep at nighttime to have people tell them that they're appreciated. I mean, I still can't get over it. And I never will. The Egg McMuffin cop. People need to thank us. No one thanks us anymore. Why do you constantly need, like, thanks for your job? You're a cop. You do what you do. You go around and harass the community. People don't feel comfortable around you. You don't get to be mad at people because they feel uncomfortable around the militarized authority that we have roaming the streets. People have every right in the world to be uncomfortable around the police. People have every right in the world to hate the cops. People have every right in the world not to trust these people and don't don't trust the cops don't trust your mayors the fact that she put that shit in a private facebook group it just tells you everything that you need to know the things that they'll say to our faces and then what they'll go and say behind our backs to the police this is also too i mean we didn't even need to hear that video to know this it's just further confirmation of what we already understand But our elected officials aren't stopping the police from terrorizing us. Mayors are, they're the cops' bosses. Like, the mayor of a city does control the police force. So if the police are out, it's because that mayor is too afraid to say, no, don't go to these protests. Or sometimes I wonder if the, how... Many of these police forces just straight up have information on these elected officials. You know, if you don't let us do the things that we want, we'll start, we have the addresses of all your family members. We'll start tailing these people. We'll start giving them like petty little tickets and shit like that. The cops can ruin your life. They have all the information. So uh, there's power that they have that we know about. There's power that they have that we can only, that we can only question, that we can only hypothesize about, but Wow, the police the police have the mayor of Madison under their thumb, and it seems like she's really comfortable there. All right, everybody, that's just about going to wrap it up here on Socialist Evolution. Thank you so much for being with me today. It's Friday, so have a beautiful weekend to everybody out there. There is quite a bit that I wanted to get to on this episode, and I wasn't able to, so be on standby. I really want to talk about Yemen soon. Maybe like brush up on what's happening in Yemen. The country's about to go extinct. 
They're on the brink of collapse. So that's a really important story that I want to get to. We will talk about that next week. And if I can't fit it in, maybe I'll just do like a bonus episode specifically devoted to Yemen and the United States role in that humanitarian crisis as we keep pumping Saudi Arabia full of weapons that they then use to kill the Yemenis. So that's a really important story. We are going to talk about that. Um, Even though this episode was a little sad because it's the news, I do want everyone to leave with this week with a feeling of victory. Tuesday was a really big night for progressives. And while there's so much work to do, when we make these inroads in electoral politics, when we actually can start to envision a real progressive caucus, that's incredible progress that we're making. So everybody keep your heads up. Um, That's what I'm going to be doing. And I will see you on Tuesday for book club number two. We are going to be diving into Vivek Chibber's second pamphlet in the ABCs of capitalism, and that is capitalism and the state. So that's going to be really interesting. Keep your ears peeled for that on Tuesday. Until then, best in solidarity to all of you. Have a wonderful, beautiful weekend.